Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they said? What's the wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Familiarity breeds contempt. We're familiar with this old adage, the idea that the closer you get to something or to someone, the less you grow to appreciate it. In our story this morning, we come face to face with one of history's most tragic examples of this proverbial truth. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. In the first five chapters, Jesus has been a man on a mission. It's as if Mark has just been scrambling to keep up. The chapters, verses, uh, chapters 1 to 5, don't even represent a long stretch of time, and yet there's a machine gun-like rapidity in the reporting. Here's how one commentator summarizes what we've already seen. Quote, as Jesus moves about, he leaves behind him a trail of transformed scenes. A trail of transformed scenes. Fishermen no longer at their nets, sick people restored to life, critics confounded, a storm stilled, hunger assuaged, a dead girl raised to life. Jesus' presence is active and instantly transforming. He's never the mere observer of the scene or the one who waits upon events, but always the transformer of the scene and the initiator of events. At the end of Mark chapter 6, but by the time we get to the end of this chapter, Jesus will be at the peak of his ministry. In fact, Mark 6 is, is the longest of any chapter in Mark's gospel, except for chapter 14. And by the time we reach the end, he'll be at the, the, the peak of his ministry. And yet here at the beginning, the atmosphere does not seem very hopeful. Here's what I think is the main idea of Mark 6, 1 to 6. In a world filled with dangerous things, nothing is a greater threat to you than your own unbelief. In a world filled with dangerous things, nothing is a greater threat to you than your own unbelief. We'll think about that in two simple points that arise out of these verses. First, Jesus opposed, and second, Jesus amazed. Jesus opposed, we'll see that in verses 1 to 3, and Jesus amazed, that's verses 4 to 6. First, Jesus opposed. Look there in verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. 
So Jesus has returned, he has returned to Nazareth, a little town about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum, and he's coming back there, but not just for old time's sake. Jesus, if you remember, has had some tense and even painful interactions with his own family in Mark's gospel. Remember chapter 3. Jesus is returning to this place, Nazareth, which is incredibly obscure. Nazareth, you know how many times it's mentioned in the whole Old Testament? Zero. In the Apocrypha, zero. In rabbinic literature, zero. Here is a village with a population probably of a couple hundred, not much more than we have here this morning, a population that effectively didn't even register on the map. This is why in John 1, when Philip uh, finds Nathanael and says, we found the one Moses wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, Nathanael's response is, Nazareth? (laughs) Can anything good come out of there? Jesus is making his way back, not because he's nostalgic, but because he has a purpose. His family thinks he's out of his mind, And now, it seems, his oldest friends and neighbors agree. Look at the middle of verse 2. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. What's really interesting is they don't deny the evidence. They acknowledge that he's working wonders and has this otherworldly wisdom. They just don't know where he got it from. Verse 3 should read, And so they put their faith in him. That's not what we read. We don't even read something tame like, And yet, they disagreed with him. No, Mark uses a visceral word. Scandalizo. They're scandalized. They're recoiling in disgust. See, the problem isn't so much the wording of these six questions. It's the spirit of them. They're essentially asking the same thing that the disciples did in chapter 4 in the boat. Who is this? But their questions are not coming from a heart of faith. In fact, you could say that they're questions that aren't really questions. They're asking, but they're also supplying the answers. See, I don't think we Americans easily grasp this perspective. The perspective of these Nazarenes. I mean, we love stories of the underdog, right? The the unlikely person who leaves the unlikely place, becomes the hometown hero, and then uh, returns to great fanfare. Well, clearly that was not the Nazarene mentality. Their perspective seems to have been more, have you forgotten your place, Jesus? Because we haven't. We know who you are. You're not a hometown hero. You are a lunatic, and you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Who do you think you are? 
They simply couldn't believe that their village, their little, tiny, insignificant, off-the-map village could produce anything like a Messiah. And so, because they knew him and couldn't explain him, they choose to reject him. You can just imagine their thought process, maybe even what they were voicing. It's like, buddy, okay, you might be able to fool some of those folks up in Capernaum. Good for you. But you're not going to fool us. We know your pedigree. We were there. We watched you. You didn't start following a rabbinic priest at the age of 13. We saw you following your daddy with a little toolbox. I mean, they say here, isn't this the carpenter? It's like they're saying, we, don't, don't be so full of yourself, Jesus. We know you're just the guy who builds things. And I almost wonder if Jesus was thinking, yes, and I've come to build a lot more than what you've seen. I've, I've come to establish and construct the very kingdom of God. This cold reception in Nazareth is the very kind of treatment that the prophet Isaiah had forecasted seven centuries before. Listen to the first few verses of Isaiah 53. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to this famous prophecy describing the Messiah. He grew up before the Lord like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. This is a tragically sad scene in the Nazarene synagogue. Sinclair Ferguson observes, quote, Jesus had suffered the subtle attacks of the Pharisees with their contorted theological arguments. But here in Nazareth, the abuse had no subtle nuances. It was open, brazen rejection. They could not tolerate one who had come from among them and yet was so different from them. In that respect, Nazareth was a miniature of world history. It's true, isn't it? Unbelief can take so many forms, can't it? Unbelief is not a a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. Some people want to want to scorn Jesus, want want to kind of uh, just mock him out of the room. Some will lift their fist and curse him, but, but others just, just kind of chuckle at Jesus. They, they laugh him. They want to laugh him out of the room. And still others, well, they, they just kind of nod off to sleep while Jesus is still in the room. There are different forms of unbelief. If you're not a Christian, I don't know how your unbelief finds expression, how it manifests itself. I mean, you may think your unbelief 
is pretty tame, something you can manage, something that's not super serious because after all, you have some religiosity on your record, you're in a church service. But friend, hear me. Hear me. This is the lesson of the Gospels. The most dangerous kind of unbelief, the most dangerous kind, is the kind that persists within spitting distance of Jesus. Don't think that just because you're close to him, just because you're in his vicinity, that you know him or he knows you. Don't flatter yourself and think that just because you're not as bad as some people you know, and maybe you do have some spirituality in your life, that you're good with God. You're not. The most loving thing I could possibly say to you this morning is that you are not good with the God who made you if you are living for yourself. The Bible is very clear that God created us not for ourselves, but for Him and for His glory. And in fact, living for His glory is where we find our highest enjoyment. The life for which you were made, the life you most deeply desire is found in knowing and loving and serving and enjoying God. But all of us have turned away from that original design for our good, and we've instead lived for ourselves. We've built our lives around other things. We've scrambled to try to live for something else, someone else other than God. And usually it's what's staring right back at us in the mirror. And because of this, God, in his justice and even his goodness, could have left us in that state of ruin and judgment. But the reason that the Bible is so long is because we have a God who decided to invade the story that we ruined and to redeem it and to rescue rebels like us out of it. That's why Jesus came. The whole emphasis of Mark chapters 1 through 5 has been that the kingdom of God has made a personal appearance on earth in the person of Jesus Christ, and that he has come to inaugurate this kingdom first by living the life we haven't, by dying the death we deserve to die, and by rising again so that if anyone turns away from their sin, their rebellion, their selfishness, their idolatry, and puts their trust in him, that one day they can have the hope that they will rise right along with him. And it's a free offer. As I prayed earlier, it's a free offer. We are justified, declared righteous in the sight of a holy God. In the courtroom of heaven, you can be pronounced right before God, simply through coming to Jesus with empty-handed, desperate faith. If you want to think more about that message, the most important message you will hear today or this whole year, if you want to think more about that message and what it means for your life, this room is crowded with people who would love nothing more than to have that conversation with you. Do not leave this building today, friend, without having a conversation with someone here. I'll be standing at the door. There are others around who would love to talk to you about how you can be made right with God through faith. One word of clarification that I think is it's important to just register this. 
what the Bible calls unbelief is not the same as what the Bible calls doubt. Everyone doubts from time to time. In fact, Jesus' own brother Jude, who gets a shout-out in our passage this morning, he's one of the brothers listed here, he will go on to write a New Testament letter in which he says in Jude 1.22, be merciful to those who doubt. Not be mad at those who doubt, not be shrill toward those who doubt, not be harsh toward those who doubt, but be merciful to those who doubt. See, doubt struggles to believe, whereas unbelief refuses to believe. Doubt struggles to believe, whereas unbelief, according to the Bible, obstinately refuses to believe. And as we said earlier, it can take many forms. But whatever the form, this kind of hardened, calloused, intransigent refusal to believe takes, it's lethally dangerous to a human soul. In the words of John Stott, unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied. It is a sin to be deplored. Unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied. It is a sin to be deplored. We so want here at RCBC to be a church that is a safe place for good faith questions and honest doubts but not a safe place for unbelief. These people here in Nazareth, they thought they knew Jesus. I mean, they thought they had him pegged, figured out. And that proved to be their greatest barrier. It's interesting that their familiarity with him, the fact that they felt that they were so closely identified with him was their very downfall. I mean, there's a lesson here for us, isn't there? Beware of becoming overly familiar with your Savior. I mean, we already noted how familiarity can breed contempt. We, we know this is true in our relationships, with our possessions, in our marriages. We know that at times, that we can lose the, the, the luster and the wonder that we once enjoyed with something or someone if we're not careful. What's well, the same with your relationship with God? These Nazarenes were incapable of accurately seeing Jesus. I mean, they were looking at him and they missed him. They couldn't see him precisely because they so closely identified themselves with him. It's like their, their faces were, were so close to the object that, that they couldn't see the, the outline of a Messiah. All they could see was the blur of familiarity. And related to this danger of getting so used to Jesus that you become overly familiar with him is the danger of getting really comfortable with him. They're like twin dangers. They're closely related. Overfamiliarity and being overly comfortable. This is such a danger, especially for those of us who have grown up in church, around the things of God. I mean, some of us can remember growing up outside of the church in a non-Christian environment. 
And we remember clearly and vividly when God, through his Holy Spirit, flipped on the light switch and our dark world was illumined. But for others of us, we we can't ever remember being in a room that was anything but super bright with the things of God. And we've grown really comfortable under those fluorescent bulbs. We, we, we take that, that light for granted. Those of you who are young, teenagers in particular, I, I want to encourage you, it is so easy in the teenage years to just coast along in the Christian life, to just feel comfortable, to come and go as you please, to again be in the vicinity of Jesus, but at a safely removed distance, lest you be labeled a, a, a fanatic. Don't buy the lie, friend. Don't buy the lie that Jesus is after anything less than your whole self. He is not a homeboy. He is not a cosmic buddy. He is the king. And he's not interested in making you comfortable. He wants to make you holy. Now, yes, he does comfort us. That's the good news of the gospel that I just preached, that if we come to him for mercy, he will comfort us. But he is never about the work of making us comfortable. And to speak frankly, If you profess to be a Christian and you find the Christian life following Jesus super easy and comfortable, then perhaps it's not Jesus you're following. Speaking of false Jesuses, is the Jesus you believe in able to disagree with you? Is he permitted to offend you or if you're honest friend and you're thinking about the jesus that you've settled for is he more a figment of your imagination or your wishful thinking maybe an idealized projection of yourself but not the lord of heaven and earth see if if your god never disagrees with you never confuses you never offends you then you are not staring at transcendence. You are looking in the mirror. Beware of fashioning a Jesus that fits your preferences. That's precisely what these Nazarenes wanted to do. They were fine with Jesus walking the earth so long as he fit into their preconceived notions of what he was allowed to be. If the Jesus of the Bible is someone that you struggle with at times, someone who says things that sting and challenge you and maybe bother you or confuse you or offend you, then welcome to a real relationship with a real person. The hometown crowd thought they had this wonder-working carpenter figured out, didn't they? We've got him. We've got him figured out, managed, controlled, but the Lord of heaven and earth will not be boxed in by the the cardboard and the duct tape of our expectations. He is in the business of bursting out of what we expect him 
to be in sovereign love. He bursts out of whatever expectations and preferences we lay on him because he knows what we need. He's not going to just give us what we want him to be. He's going to be who we need him to be in love. Well, the Son of God should have received a hero's welcome here in his hometown. He should have received worship. His his childhood playmate should have been on their face before him, but all he hears instead is, hey, Mary's boy, we've got you pegged. They're staring at the Messiah. They're staring at their own long-awaited Messiah, and all they can see is a mustard seed. Jesus opposed. Number two, Jesus amazed. Jesus amazed. Verse four, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. So Jesus here evokes this proverb about being rejected by those who should most warmly receive him. In U.S. presidential elections, we know this intuitively, we expect a candidate to carry their home state. But Jesus here is not making an observation about modern presidents or even people in general. This is specifically an observation about divine prophets. That's why if you look carefully, Jesus says, he doesn't say a person but a prophet is not without honor except in his own town. I mean, even a cursory reading of the Old Testament reveals that this was tragically typical treatment of those that God raised up to be his mouthpieces. So verse four here, this little proverb, it's an explanation of their unbelief. But of course, it's not an excuse. And by the way, I mentioned the claim to be a prophet. We shouldn't so focus on the proverb that we miss the claim. This is the first time in Mark's gospel that this title has been applied to Jesus. This high designation of prophet. Mark wants us to sense fulfillment in the air. This is why our call to worship This morning was the opening verses of Hebrews, which Colton preached to us so faithfully last week. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is claiming to be heaven's final prophetic word. I mean, his predecessors could could utter, thus says the Lord, But he has stepped onto the scene to say, truly, truly, I say to you. This is why our scripture reading earlier in the service was from Deuteronomy 18. I hope you're seeing why we print out service guides and give them to you because we want you to use them throughout the week to reflect on our corporate worship together and to use them as an aid for studying Scripture yourself and pressing its truths even deeper into your heart as you reflect on the ways that the readings and the songs in the sermon passage were woven together with a purpose. Deuteronomy 18, where Moses, centuries before our passage this morning, spoke these words to Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. And Jesus implicitly is making the claim 
that that long-awaited prophet like Moses is now standing in the Nazareth synagogue. I think the reason he chooses this title, prophet, is because he's saying, he's, he's throwing shade at them. He's saying, you're treating me exactly the way that your forefathers treated the prophets of old, whom you revere, but you are just reliving their history by rejecting me. You're on the wrong side of this equation. God's kingdom has personally appeared on earth, and you're scoffing, and you're scandalized, and you're mocking, and you're dismissing, and you're yawning instead of putting your faith in me. Mark, of course, is on a mission to help us see that Jesus is more than a prophet, okay? Jesus is more than God's final word, but he's not less, and Jesus wants us to see that. Verse 5, Jesus could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Mark, Mark is not saying that Jesus was physically unable to do any miracles. I mean, he literally says in the exact same verse that Jesus did heal some people, i.e. he did miracles. But Mark is saying that most of the Nazarenes were so entrenched in unbelief that it would have been morally and spiritually inconsistent for Jesus to spend his time wowing them. Tim Keller helpfully observes this about the scene in Nazareth. Quote, Jesus didn't lack the naked power to perform miracles, but he lacked the proper context for his purpose in miracles. You never see Jesus setting a mountain on fire or writing words in the sky or doing a purely spectacular display of divine power. Obviously, someone who calmed a hurricane and raised the dead could do such things. Why didn't he do so? The answer is that Jesus' miracles were not magic tricks designed to prove how powerful he was, but signs of the kingdom to show how his redemptive power operates. His miracles always restored and delivered people in ways that revealed how we are to find him and be transformed through him, or by him, through faith. If you recall at the end of chapter 5, remember verse 40, there were no miracles for those mockers. They mocked Jesus when he said, when he suggested that Jairus' daughter was not dead but just asleep. And what did Jesus do? Did he perform a miracle to convince them? No, he shut them out of the house so that he could enter and do the work of God. And here at the beginning of chapter 6, we see that there will be no miracles for those who mock and no miracles for those who yawn. Verse 5 is a declaration of prophetic judgment. This is God giving people over to their desires. The king will not work where he is not wanted. We've already seen this principle. Mark 4.24. Remember, Jesus says, carefully consider what you hear. With the measure you use, it'll be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. If you receive the word of God with a glad and hungry and receptive heart, you'll get more and more insight and help in obeying it. 
But Jesus says in Mark 4.25, whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Again, he's saying, beware of pouring that concrete onto the flower bed of your heart. Beware of persisting stubbornly in unbelief, whether it's the unbelief of active opposition or passive indifference. Whether it's, it's the unbelief of, of the, a middle finger or the unbelief of just a quiet and polite yawn. Make no mistake, the most common way, friends, that Jesus is being rejected in Richmond, Virginia, today, is not with a defiant fist, but with a disinterested shrug. As we've seen, unbelief takes many forms, and that's been true throughout history. We're, we're situated here in Richmond in the 21st century West, and it's worth noting how even the ability to believe, to, to live a life of public faith, has become more different, and I would argue difficult than ever. The Canadian philosopher, perhaps some of you have heard of Charles Taylor and his landmark book, A Secular Age, I don't recommend reading it. It is a tough book to work through, uh, but it's monumentally important. There, there are actually some other books which summarize it, <laughs> but he details how the conditions of belief in Western culture, what he calls the conditions of belief, have shifted over the centuries. It used to be, as it were, impossible not to believe in some kind of God, in the, in the pre-modern era, okay, a thousand years ago. It, it was impossible not to believe. But ever since the Enlightenment, it has become not only possible not to believe, but almost impossible to believe. That, that is, that's not to say there aren't believers out there. That's to say that we're born into a culture where belief is one option among many, which is a pretty new thing in human history. Belief is no longer something that's just assumed. It's something that's contested. But these changing conditions of belief don't exonerate us from responsibility. Because here's the thing. Even though these Nazarenes inhabited a culture like ours, I'm sorry, unlike ours, in which it was easy to believe in a God. So you might be thinking, Matt, why are you waxing philosophical about this Canadian guy and how things are today for Richmonders? What does that have to do with the Nazarenes? The Nazarenes were in that pre-modern era that you were talking about where it was easy to believe. Well, yes, they lived in a time where it was easy to believe in a God. But in their particular subculture as Jews, it was impossible to believe that a man could be the creator God. They were primed to disbelieve in a God-man just as much as we are primed to disbelieve in God. But the, un the unbelief is equally inexcusable. And here's the thing, to Jesus, it's equally unthinkable. Did you notice that at the end of our passage? In all the Gospels, Jesus is only said to be amazed by two things. In all the Gospels, great faith, Matthew chapter 8, the Roman centurion, and 
unbelief. Verse 2 in our passage, he amazes the crowds or the people in the synagogue. He amazes them. Verse 6, they amaze him. Do you want to make Jesus Christ marvel? Do you want to leave the Son of God dumbfounded? Don't believe in him. Again, Sinclair Ferguson helpfully summarizes the lesson. Quote, Nazareth enjoyed so many advantages. The Son of God had lived among them in childhood. He had preached to them with power. He had carried out some miracles, but they were blind to his identity, deaf to his message, and hardened their hearts against him. Mark doesn't record any further visits to Nazareth. Perhaps there were none. Even what they had was taken from them. Let us learn from their sad example. Jesus may be disappointed, but he will not be deterred, which is why verse 6 goes on to say, not that he threw in the towel, but that he left Nazareth and went from village to village. And of course, his mission will eventually lead him even farther away from his hometown as he makes that long and lonely journey south to Jerusalem. The Pharisees are opposing him. The crowds are misunderstanding him. His family is criticizing him. His hometown has rejected him. Can you sense the dark, foreboding cloud descending over his life? As those he knows best and loves and came to serve are closing ranks in opposition to him. As we'll see next week, Jesus experiences here in Nazareth the very thing that he is going to tell his disciples to expect themselves when they go out in his name. Rejection. And remember, who was Mark's original audience? Mark's original audience was not a bunch of youth group kids. He was writing to persecuted believers flung across the Roman Empire who were experiencing this very kind of disgrace and scorn and rejection, not only from the people they were taking the gospel to, but also from the people they had grown up with. But Mark wants his readers and he wants us to know that our master has been there too. He knows what it's like to be scorned by those who should embrace us. But it's a privilege. Isn't it a privilege to trail in his footsteps and to suffer rejection and disgrace for his kingdom? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that you would make us a church of people who believe. Lord, we know doubts will come. We know difficulties will come. But we pray that you would guard us from the kind of heart that would, would recoil in disgust when we see you. Oh, Lord, give us eyes to see your beauty and to want to share that beauty and that goodness with others. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.